The word of the Lord tonight is 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 13 verses. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. The portion at the front of the main hall in the temple extended the width of the temple, that is 20 cubits, and projected 10 cubits from the front of the temple. He made narrow celestial windows in the temple. Against the walls of the main hall and inner sanctuary, he built a structure around the building in which there were side rooms. The lowest floor was five cubits wide, the middle floor six cubits, and the third floor seven. He made offset ledges around the outside of the temple so that nothing would be inserted into the temple walls. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tools were heard at the temple site while it was being built. The entrance to the lowest floor was on the south side of the temple. A stairway led up to the middle level and from there to the third. So he built the temple and completed it, roofing it with beams and cedar planks, and he built the side rooms all along the temple. The height of each was five cubits, and there were attached to the temple by beams of cedar. The word of the Lord came to Solomon, As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill them. I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. Thus saith the Lord. So what do we do with that? The building of the temple is really the peak of Solomon's career. And really the temple in the Old Covenant is the symbol of the Old Covenant. It's the, the symbol of how a person of God related to God under the Old Covenant system. And I think we have a, a picture of what the temple probably looked like, and maybe we could keep that up there for a little bit. Uh, what I want to do tonight is, is take this description of the temple, which goes all the way through chapter 7. It's quite lengthy. There's about 100 verses describing in intricate detail the temple. And I, I want to, to treat it typologically. And, and what I mean by that is uh, a type is a, uh, a person or figure or institution in Scripture that prefigures something in the New Testament, that points towards or foreshadows something in the New Testament. And the temple is a type of Christ and his church. Uh, you see that in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6. The temple is a type of Christ and his church. And so what we're going to do is walk through uh, loosely all of chapter 6 and 7 and, and try to develop a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, and, and that's important uh, for a number of reasons. 
and, and, and uh, let me just kind of take a second to try to flesh that out. Christians tend to think about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in two different ways. Uh, a lot of Christians, I think, look at the New Covenant as Old Covenant 2.0. It's, uh, it's an update. It's uh, revised. It's improved. It has better font, uh, more uh, capacity, and it works faster. And if that's the way you think about the Old Covenant, then you're still sort of living under it, but with a little bit of Jesus sort of you know, splashed on over it. I think the New Testament teaches that the New Covenant is actually an entirely different operating system that reflects an entirely different way of relating to God. I think that's the point of the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and large parts of the book of John. So let's kind of tease this out a little bit, and maybe you can try to see, am I, how do I think about these two covenants? So for starters, the narrator is kind of like a tour guide in a big cathedral, uh, getting ready to explain to us what, uh, what's happening and when it began and all the good things. And the, the narrator says that the temple was built 480 years after Israel left Egypt, so we're about 10 centuries before Christ. Uh, you remember when Solomon came to power, Jerusalem was really not much more than a fortress. Solomon is going to build Jerusalem into a mighty capital city, renowned for its religion and its, uh, and its resources. And the temple will be at the center of it. And then in verse 2, the proportions are given. And, and essentially, uh, the height of it at the highest point is about 30 yards it's, it's about 10 yards wide and 15 yards long. So it's much smaller than the temple that Herod built, the ruins of which are still there today, although it was built on the Dome of the Rock, um, which is where the ruins of the temple are today. Now, in verses 3 to 6, uh, there's a little bit of description about the, the, how the temple will be laid out. And it simply says that there'll be uh, an entrance hall, which you kind of walk in through the front there, and then there'll be that large courtyard, and then in the middle is, uh, the text calls it the inner sanctuary, or the most holy place, and then there's a whole other version of this in the book of First Chronicles, and it's also called the Holy of Holies, and that, that will be where the Ark of God dwells, and where the high priest will go once a year to make atonement for the sins of, of Israel. Um, there's an interesting little detail in verse 7 about the building of this uh, temple. It says, When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool or iron was heard in the house while it was being built. <laughs> That's quite an architectural feat. I'm not exactly sure how you pull that off, but uh, essentially what this command was, and by the way, in Chronicles it says that God gave all the instructions for the building of the temple. The command was, this house is to be so holy, I don't want any noise when you build it. So cut everything, hammer everything, and put it together in the quarry. And I, I'm trying to figure out where... I've, I've, I've been there, and I don't remember... 
I mean, the quarry was a long way away, um, and somehow bring it all together and silently piece it together. Because, and then there's a verse in Exodus 20, verse 25, that says that the, the, the hammering of rock profanes the holy place. <laughs> so there's this idea that this, God's presence is so holy that when you construct his home, you need to be entirely quiet. And I wonder if that doesn't point towards a spiritual lesson for us as well, that God dwells in silence. Um, He's met in silence. There needs to be silence in our life. Now, I'm terrible at these update things, but my phone keeps telling me I need to update it, and I always obey. What happens if you don't do that? Does it, like, shoot you or something? I don't know what happens, but I always obey. And, And every time I update it, more things show up on it. And, and now I get news flashes that I don't want, and I can't figure out how to turn off. Maybe Brian can show me how to turn that off. But, and so now if I go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, which is more information than you need to know, but it's a regular occurrence in my life now, and I, I, I happen to glance at my phone, I now know something else that some candidate has said or some other shooting somewhere You can never be quiet in this world. I was talking to somebody about that, and and they said, it remains to be seen whether human beings have the capacity to handle constant information all the time. No one in the history of the human race has ever tried to do this. So a principle that somewhere uh, we we find some silence because God seems to be pleased and to meet us in a special way when we are quiet. Uh, if you have young children, ignore the last five minutes. Um, now, no guilt, no guilt, no guilt. Um, I remember once just being infuriated at a child as I prayed because they were talking. Some, somehow that cannot please the Lord, I don't think. <laughs> That's not the heart of the Father. Then, in the middle of this description of, of the building of this, and the cedars come from Lebanon, and Danny Bullington was explaining to me that you know, cedars have this marvelous smell when you, you cut them, and so you would walk in, and you, you would smell the smell, and then they're all covered with gold, and it's just, it's just an amazing feat. In the middle of this description, God kind of breaks in with a warning and uh, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning the house that you're building. If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you and I'll dwell among the children of Israel, will not forsake my people. If then, if you disobey, I will not bless you. I will discipline you. I will punish you. I will curse you. If you obey me, I will bless you with my presence. And the rest of the Old Testament says with Lots of cattle and sheep and land and, and, and all that. And if you want to kind of dig into this old covenant way of thinking about uh, spirituality, read the book of Deuteronomy. And it's all through there. If then, if then, if then, if then. And a matter of fact, the way the book of Deuteronomy ends, before they go to the promised land, uh, Moses lines up, I think it's the, all the priests on one mountain and all the Levites on the other mountain. And as they walk through towards the promised land, Half of the leaders are shouting out, if you obey, I will bless. And the other half are shouting out, and if you don't, I'll curse you. Can you imagine that scene? 
So that's the old covenant, if then. If you do this, then I will do that. Now, how do we apply this to the new covenant? Well, my thought is, is that a lot of us are still working off of 2.0. I know I am uh, at, at some, some deep level. If I raise my kids well, then they will follow the Lord and marry Christians and give me grandchildren and whatever. Uh, if I am a godly husband and pray for my marriage and go to the right Christian counselor, I will never fail in my marriage. If I earnestly pray for my children, they will never be sick. If I apply biblical principles in my business, my business must flourish. If I tithe, God will prosper me. Well, there's a ring of truth to all of that. But if you've lived long enough, the only problem is it doesn't work. It's not true. Some of the godliest kids I know come from drug-addled hippies who hardly knew they had kids raising them. Some of the most flourishing business people I know could care less about God. Some of the most generous, sacrificial people I know struggle terribly with their financial situation. So if you're trying to make sense of the world by setting it all up on, if I do this, then this will happen, it just doesn't seem to work out. And it also seems to fly against the face of what the New Testament teaches us to believe particularly in places like Romans 7, 6, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in new life of the Spirit. Galatians 4, 6, and because your sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. John 15, we abide in Christ, that's how we bear much fruit. Uh, The Beatitudes... A total reversal of all the material blessing theology of the Old Testament in the Beatitudes when Jesus is as the new Moses speaking to the new Israel, uh, is laying out the new value system of the kingdom of God. He does it entirely differently. He goes through all the Beatitudes and he says that the benefits will be spiritual. You'll be blessed. You'll be poor of heart. The fruits in the New Testament are spiritual. So everything goes from material to spiritual. So, this is a critical uh, point, I think, to understand, um, is that the if-then linearity of the Old Covenant, while still applying in areas like gravity and Twinkies, does not apply anymore spiritually. And, And you may disagree with me, and I know there's a little bit of a tension here, right? Because if you, if you work hard at things, things tend to go back. I mean, I get all of that. But the new covenant is not rooted in your performance. It is rooted in the performance of Christ on the cross. And yes, we want to do good works, 
but not, God, please bless me. I'll, I'll study this sermon another hour if you just make it go better tonight. That's an inferior motivation. The higher motivation is, I'm loved. I mean, Judy, that, that was, to me, the high point of the service. It's all downhill from here. I mean, that was just the best prayer. I'm loved. And so I'll love. It's a much higher way. And, and I want to just put a plug in. Mark and the, and the folks on Monday night are going to be studying the Gospel of John. And if you're looking for a real good Bible study on some of these truths, John just nails the stuff. Uh, it's a great place to go sit and soak in some of these, some of these realities. Um, so, the next thing that we see happening here is God gives this long description of the, the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. And it's very interesting. Um, the Ark of the Covenant goes in there. And then there's these two huge angels that go in there. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high, so about 15 feet high. And their wings touch each other, and then he covers them with gold. And they, uh, can we go to that other slide? I don't know how well it shows it, but um, those are the different things that would be in, in the Holy of Holies. Uh, you don't see the cherubim on that, and I'm not sure why. Um, I think it would be behind the curtain. And, the, and I tried to find this today. Maybe some of you know this and I don't. As far as I could tell, there are no windows. And so it's dark. And so the Lord somehow dwells in this ineffable darkness with these enormous winged creatures guarding his presence and hovering over his presence. Well, what do we do with that as a new covenant? On the one hand, I I think it should remind us of how holy God is and stir us to to worship at his awesomeness. I mean, that's what these enormous creatures are there to do. But I think in the Old Covenant, the angels are also there to protect God from the people. You are not supposed to go in there. And if you do, you die. And later on, there'll actually be a a, a wall outside called the Gate of the Gentiles with a sign that says, "If Gentiles, which most of us are, are that, if you go past here, you'll, you'll die. Now, what happens when Christ, the great high priest, offers his sacrifice on the altar of the cross? That veil is split in two, and everything is turned upside down. Everything is reversed. Everything is inverted. And now, God is loose. (laughs) Uh, The the, the presence of God pours out on the Spirit of God at, at Pentecost. And so there's this great reversal of, of God wanting to dwell with us, wanting to be in us, wanting intimate familial communion. 
And I wonder if some of us are still relating to God under that old covenant scenario. I wonder if we've shifted from that sense of God does not want me around here. I can only get to him through a holy person to God actually lives in my heart and I can cry out, Abba, Father, and have access to him through Christ any moment of the day. See, there's a very foundational shift here. Well, the next thing that happens, and we won't read much of it, but in chapter 7, verses 1 to 12, we get a, a little picture of what else Solomon is doing as he's building the temple. Verse 1, Solomon was building his own house 13 years. Do you remember how long he built the temple? Um, seven. And he built the house of the forest of Lebanon, And then for the next 13 verses, it's a description of all Solomon built for himself. His house with 100 cubits and its breadth 50 cubits. And then he made the hall of pillars, its length with 50 cubits. And then he made the hall of the throne where he is to pronounce judgment. Then his own house where he was to dwell. He also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter whom he'd taken in marriage. And the text goes on and on and on. Do Do you think the narrator might be telling us something here? Solomon does a good job. He really seems to want to worship God, to have God at the center of Israel's life. He wants to create a worshiping community. But somewhere he gets kind of bored halfway through and builds himself a house that's twice as big and three others, one for his Egyptian wife. This is the story of the Bible. I suppose it's the story of our own life you know, we, we, we want to do the right thing. We're trying to do the right thing. But then this ego, this greed, this sense of I'm really in charge just kind of creeps in. And, of course, we do know that within a generation, the lovely temple will be ransacked um, by invaders. Now, in, in verses 13, all the way down to verse 47 in chapter 7, there's this really interesting portion that describes the art. And that's really about all that goes on for about 40 verses is the description of all the art in the temple, which is really interesting. And I'll just pick a couple of verses. Um, And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre, a worker in bronze. He was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. So in other words, he, he has a special role as an artist uh, to create art that draws the presence of, of God. He casts two pillars of stone. Can we go back to the other slide, Bruce? He casts two pillars of stone, and he, he made uh, two capitals of cast bronze to set on tops of the pillars. There were lattices of checker work with wreaths of chain work for the capitals on the tops of the pillars. So you can, you can kind of see them at the very front of, uh, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they're, they're right there. And if I go much farther, I'll, I'll lose all this. But they're, they're, they're these two pillars that have this huge basin on top of it that you can't see very well there. The thing that's so important about this is they don't do anything. <laughs> That's so cool. 
I mean, God could have said, Thou shalt build for me a Walmart that I might rest in cinder block and fluorescent lighting and that you might spend all the other money on the poor. No, he, he says, build me something beautiful. And the, the descriptions is just so intricate and ornate. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the, the one uh, latticework. Now, the capitals were on the tops of the pillars were covered with lilies, and there were 200 pomegranates in two rows all around the capitals. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round, and from brim to brim, and under its brim were gourds, compassing the sea all around. And it stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, three facing east. The sea was set on them. Its brim was made like the flower of a lily. He made 10 stands of bronze. On the panels were lions, oxen, and cherubim. (laughs) Oof. This is just a stunning, beautiful place for God to live. What do we learn from that? God likes it. He likes beauty. Matter of fact, in 2 Chronicles 3, 6, Solomon covered the house with precious stones for beauty. So we've got about a whole chapter in the Bible that talks about art in the temple as something God is drawn to. Well, I asked a couple of our artists to read this and say, what do you see in here? Um, here's a comment from Laura Cottrell. God cares about details like curtains and embroidery. He wants to remind us that we live in the freedom of Christ, a place that glows with the reflected beauty of the Trinity and illuminates the rich metaphor that our artist God wove into the fabric of our world. Freedom, a state of being where we listen to God's guiding spirit, ignoring the voices around us that tell us that everything we do must be functional and productive. Art is a lot like Sabbath-keeping. It's a waste of time designed to remind us of our God-given identity and the God-ordained realities around us, bringing us back to valuing the things God values and seeing things through God's eyes. And then Ashley Walker read this text. She says, I'm encouraged by these chapters that they're included in a sacred text when so many other details of living are not. It's an affirming record of attention to detail, material, process, and symbolism, all toward an aesthetic experience that speaks to the spirit of a people. I think we humans need these aesthetic experiences because our rational conscious self is not able to grasp the entirety of reality without them. I think these chapters exemplify a value that says our sensory response to art matters. Creative vision and attention to detail affect the spirit of a place and the interior of souls. Beauty or its lack is powerful, and our God notices, and at least in this case, is moved by our extravagant pursuit of excellence. So art is pleasing to God, invites his presence, even when it doesn't serve a function. So if you are a poet or a painter, a playwright, a sculptor, and you're wondering, why am I doing this all night. This isn't valuable. I'm not getting anything done. This doesn't matter. It does matter. Because God loves beauty. Now, 
what could this mean to us in the New Covenant? Remember, because in the New Covenant, the, the temple is a type of the church, it's a type of Christ, it's a type of our relationship with him. Well, I suggest what it means is that as our inner world is transformed by the Spirit and becomes more beautiful, the presence and power of the living God is more fully at home in us. That as we grow in him and our, our, our sanctuary, that inner place where God dwells, as that becomes more lovely, more beautiful, God is able to fill us with more of his fullness. I think that's kind of the goal of all of this. You know, the other, the other day just, just was pretty dry about some things and not, not connecting very well. And uh, uh, Laura gave a devotion on art and how you can look at a painting and that can be a way to meet God. And uh, so went home and uh, uh, called Ruth and Ace and uh, said, could you teach us how to meet God at the symphony? I don't know how I've been in school as long as I've been in school. I've never had any class at all on how to appreciate any other kind of music than what's on the radio. And so we spent a little time with them, and they, they just laid out this glorious vision of what great music can be and the way it can lead us to transcend the present world and connect with God. And I just was reminded of this, that that's something that great art can do for us. And then they taught me how to use Spotify. <laughs> so the sky's the limit now. Okay. All right, now we're almost done with this, this rigorous passage. So the end of the description goes back to Solomon, verse 48, chapter 7. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table, the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side, five on the north, before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, the tongs, the cups, the snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, fire pans of pure gold, sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house uh, and for the door of the nave of the temple. Thus all the work that King Solomon did in the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasury of the house of the Lord. Now, all of these things point to Christ. They're all types of, of Christ and what he did on the cross. The altar represents where Christ died on the cross. The laver represents being washed and cleansed from our sin. The bread of the presence represents Christ being the bread of Christ. The lampstand represents Christ being the light and the lamp of the world. Uh, we could go on, and it's so beautiful to go in it. We could go on and on and on. The incense that's wafting all the time, 
represents the prayers that the high priest offers eternally in our behalf. The blood that's flooding, you know, this is a clean picture. When it was operating, it was red, right? That represents the shed blood of Christ that is somehow eternally paying for our wrath and our judgment. Uh, The old Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, put it like this. He said, Christ is now the temple and the builder, the altar and the sacrifice, the light of our souls and the bread of life, applied a able to supply all the wants of all that have applied or shall apply to him. Outward images cannot represent, words cannot express, the heart cannot conceive his preciousness or his love. Let us come to him and wash away our sins in his blood. Let us seek for the purifying grace of his spirit. Let us maintain communion with the Father through his intercession and yield up ourselves and all we have to his service. Being strengthened by him, we shall be accepted, useful, and happy. (laughs) Let's pray.